We're just about halfway through our sermon series on Paul's letter to the Ephesians, this series that we've called Wake Up Sleeper. The title is a reference to a verse that comes later in the letter, but it works well as a framework for the entire book. Coming to an awareness of God's love for us shown in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the ongoing presence of the Holy Spirit, it can feel quite a bit like waking from a deep sleep. Sometimes it is a gradual shift. Sometimes it is jarring. This letter and this series explores what life looks like after we begin to trust in God. How does faith in Jesus affect the way we act toward ourselves, toward others, and toward God? So in the past few weeks, Pastor Jason has walked us through just the first chapter of this letter. We talked about how Paul was a trustworthy pastoral leader and writer, about God's radical act of choosing to reveal God's self to the people of Israel first, and then in and through them, the world. And we explored a prayer for the Ephesians that their eyes of their hearts would be enlightened, that they might know the hope and love of God, not as a logical concept, but as a lived and felt experience. Today we we shift and we move into chapter 2 of this letter, where Paul is drawing his listeners' attention to threads of connection across the diversity in their community. These words are both challenging and comforting, and we'll soon see why. Listen now for the word of God. It comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what God has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. God of unprompted grace, we ask that you meet us here in this word, Quiet all the voices except for your own. In and through this, your holy word, shape us into the people you dreamt of at creation. Amen. So for Paul, in this section of the the second chapter here, both spiritual death and spiritual new life or resurrection, they weren't so much events as they are invisible places, realms, kingdoms that we occupy, lands through which we walk. We're all moving in one direction or another toward one destination or another, either toward sin, death, and separation from God, 
or toward redemption, new life, and reconciliation with God. When Paul says that both he and the Ephesians followed the spirit of the power of the air, followed desires of the flesh, and were by nature children of wrath, all pretty strange phrases, (laughs) they refer to this kind of invisible realm that they occupied before they knew who Jesus was, a spiritual land that they walked through the land of the spiritually dead. A land where sins compounded and resulted in suffering, death, and evil. They were heading in a direction and toward a destination that meant separation from God. Now we might look at that and think, okay, well, the solution is simple. You just turn around. (laughs) Okay, spiritually, invisibly, just change direction. If they could walk in the way that led to death, they could just change and walk in the way that led to life, right? But that's not Paul's word of challenge or comfort. He doesn't say, all you have to do is just change, or your salvation is in your hands. It's up to you. You can do it. Instead, in the middle of this passage, he has a rather long run-on sentence that says, even when we were dead, God made us alive together with Christ, raised us up from the grave with Christ. And then he says, by grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved, by grace you have been raised, by grace you have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Again, not a physical location up in the sky, but in a spiritual realm here and now, in a land of the living, so that not just now, but in ages to come, God will give more grace and more kindness. So even though Previously, Paul and the Ephesians were walking in the way of sin, they were choosing to speak and act in ways that hindered and harmed Paul is saying that because they were spiritually dead, they couldn't just up and choose to change. In, in a literal sense, dead people can't do much of anything. They certainly can't just choose to become alive again. In a spiritual sense, they were bound and trapped in a realm of death and patterns of sin and structures of suffering. But God, rich in mercy, full of great love and power, raised us up and out of that realm, out of the land of the death, into the land of the living by grace. 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 The word grace, by definition, is unmerited, unprompted favor or mercy. It can also mean elegance or a thing of beauty. And favor is goodwill or kindness given for no particular reason. So grace is a, it's a gift. It is undeserved. It can't be controlled. It can't be bought or traded or earned. A true gift is something that is given freely. It exists to delight, to comfort, to bring goodness. Now we're going to get to the spiritual implications of that in a moment. But for now, let's just sit with the simplest explanation. Grace is a form of love given truly freely And at the same time, it's given in hopes of building connection and relationship. Unmerited, unprompted, just given for the sake of giving. Now, grace as mercy or pardon has other uses too, most often related to debt or releasing someone from punishment for something bad they did. 
And that connotation is here in the scripture too. We were so stuck in sin, so spiritually dead, there was no way we could have turned things around on our own, no matter how hard we tried. In traditional atonement theories, our sinfulness means that either we have too great a debt of goodwill to pay, and that Jesus' willing sacrificial death absolves our debt, or that we deserve God's wrathful judgment and punishment, and that Jesus dies on the cross in our place, that we are pardoned from the punishment that we deserve by Jesus' death. Now, atonement theory is complicated, and it merits a separate conversation, but I bring it up to point out that over the centuries, grace has come to be kind of limited in its meaning, referenced almost always in conjunction with the totality of our sinfulness. We focus on how undeserved and unmerited grace is, instead of this kind of more nuanced and full definition. Grace is undeserved and unmerited, but it's also other things. And if we focus, if all we focus on is how horrible we are and how much we don't deserve it, we miss out on the fullness of this gift that God is trying to give us. So for the purposes of our time together today, I invite you to focus on the aspect of grace that is grace as gift given by God. Now, if grace is truly a gift, this is both challenging and comforting in two primary ways. The first is that if grace is truly a gift, there is nothing we can do to obtain it. We can't earn it, we can't buy it, we can't control it, we can't do anything to make ourselves worthy of it. And the second thing is that nothing about who we are can help us obtain grace. And for the Ephesians, this was really important. In chapter 1, Paul spends some time making a distinction between you and us, speaking of Gentile followers of Jesus as you and speaking of Jewish followers of Jesus as us. Paul outlines how God chose to be in relationship with the Jewish people in a specific way. But in and through Jesus, that choosing, that relationship, was now extending beyond the boundaries of Jewish rituals and culture. Two big issues in the early church were eating or not eating certain foods and whether or not Gentile followers of Jesus ought to be circumcised and follow other customs that were distinctly Jewish. So although Paul makes this initial distinction between the religious backgrounds of the Gentile and Jewish believers, it's in this chapter he starts to talk about the similarities between the two groups. He's making connections there. And the significant implication of this connection was that Gentile believers were not automatically at a disadvantage when it came to receiving God's grace compared to Jewish believers. We can see by inferring that that was an issue that Paul was speaking to, that no one in this group, if they were born Jewish, raised Jewish, and became a believer in Jesus, that didn't make them better or more deserving of God's grace. So grace could not be earned by their works, but it was also not contingent on a particular ethnicity or religious background or socioeconomic status or gender or age, on and on. Jewish Christians didn't have any kind of leg up on their Gentile counterparts, and any other division was leveled out too. Being a man didn't have any advantage in terms of salvation. Being rich didn't have any advantage. Being politically powerful didn't have any advantage. It was and continues to be a pretty radical assertion. The reality that nothing about who we are 
Nothing we can do can help us obtain grace. It really is a challenge and a comfort. It's hard to admit that we can't earn grace. This is the challenge part. It's hard to admit that, that something about us uh, makes us more or less acceptable in God's grace. We certainly act as if this is the case, even if we don't see it. We act as if we have to prove ourselves worthy to God. So we try so hard to do all the right things, to pray the right prayers, as if there was such a thing, (laughs) to work so hard, and we run ourselves ragged and deny our own needs. We think if we show ourselves to God to be kind and lovely, then God will grant us grace. God will give us gifts, gifts of joy, of comfort, of peace. The problem is, no one can keep that up (laughs) 24-7. And if we claim we can, we are lying to ourselves and to others. Because for every kind and lovely thing that we do, there are unkind thoughts and actions that spill out of us when we are afraid or hurting. We spend so much time putting on a show about how we deserve the gift of grace that's already been given to us. If we acknowledged our lack of control, our inability to do the right thing 100% of the time, we would be so much more free, free to receive grace, and we'd have a much easier time freely giving it to others. And the other challenge about not being able to earn God's grace or nothing about us being, having us be more or less likely to receive God's grace is that even if none of us would say that the size of someone's bank account or how well put together they look or how many political connections someone has or some other difference between ourselves and someone else, no matter, even if we wouldn't say that's the case, that it has no effect on whether or not someone can be a recipient of God's grace, we can spend a ton of energy acting otherwise. We can expend a lot of energy building up our bank accounts and thinking about appearances and seeking out security from things that don't actually last. At the same time, though, there's comforts in these challenges. Not being able to earn grace means that we can't mess it up, means we can't lose it, means that our actions can't reverse a gift that's already been given. If we can't earn it, then we don't have to keep running on the hamster wheel of good behavior for the sake of being loved by God. Instead, aware of God's love for us, we're energized and freed to do good works, to do good behavior, not for our own sake, but for the sake of the world, for love of others. Likewise, the fact that nothing we own and nothing about who we are makes us more or less likely to be given grace by God, it means that we don't have to expend a ton of energy on things that don't last. It means we don't have to shrink or hide or disguise our skin color, our cultural background, our sexuality, our gender, our resources. There's nothing that we have to change and and hide about ourselves to make ourselves more appealing more lovable, more worthy of God's grace. As I mentioned before, it's Pride Sunday here at Old Pine, the last Sunday of the month of June, which is seen by a lot of people in this country as Pride Month. And part of marking that on a Sunday here in worship means acknowledging the reality that for so long and in so many places, people who call themselves followers of Jesus 
have tried to exclude anyone who locates themselves outside the norm of gender identity and sexuality from the grace of God. For so long and in so many places, LGBTQ+, non-binary, and trans people have been told they must change that aspect of themselves in order to receive God's grace. They have been told that grace is not actually a gift, but it's a transaction, something received only when we have done or become certain things. But if grace is truly a gift, by definition, then being straight doesn't make someone more likely to receive that gift. Being gay doesn't make someone less likely to receive that gift. It's not that our differences are erased, it's that those differences don't and can't change the nature of a gift, can't change the definition of the word. Simply existing as a man or a woman, as a straight person or a gay person, as a single or married person, none of these aspects of who we are can change the definition of grace, the definition of gift. A gift is something given, not prompted, not merited, not on one's action or one's characteristics or identity. So if grace is a gift from God, and if we can't earn it, if some aspect of ourselves doesn't make us more or less worthy to receive it, if it is unmerited, unprompted, out of our control, this also means that no one else can keep that gift from us. In other words, no other person gets to say whether or not we have access to that grace, whether or not we've already been given that grace, whether or not we should have been given that grace. No one can take that grace away from you. No one can stop God from giving it to you. Now, certainly Christians try to do that sometimes. Sometimes we act as if we can. We throw words around like weapons. We deny people communion or baptism or leadership roles based on our differences. We judge as if we were God, as if we actually had the power to withhold the grace of God from other people. I haven't seen that at work here, but I have seen people who have been damaged by that in other places who have found their way here. There's still a lot of harm that can be inflicted when people try to control a gift, when they try and change the nature of grace to something transactional. I'm not trying to discount that. But this text reminds us that on a macro level, on a spiritual realm, in the land of the living, in both the already and not yet, no one can take God's grace away from you. No one can keep you from the love of God. No one can keep you from being given a gift seems so simple, but so often we live and pray and act as if other people are in charge of how much grace we can receive. So often we live and pray and act as if we and our own striving are in charge of how much grace God gives us. What a gift, what a joy to be loved by a God who draws close to us even when others try and gatekeep grace. What a gift and what a joy it is to be loved by a God who finds us, who has already given us grace so freely, even when we keep trying to earn it, even when we feel stuck in sin, even when we are lost in the land of death and despair, even still, even here, even now. God has made us alive together with Christ. God is raising us from the dead, up from the grave, inviting us into the land of the living, now and forever. 
It is my prayer that all of our hearts be soft enough to receive this unmerited, unprompted, freely given grace. Amen.